Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. After decades in the post-Soviet wilderness, some hard-left ideas are making a comeback. Our correspondent sifts through the new manifestos and investigates the differences between millennial socialism and some even more radical ideas. And with the relentless rise of e-commerce, you might have thought that the mega mall was on the way out. Not entirely. We pay a visit to a sprawling new complex that blends shopping and entertainment in a bid to keep the mall alive. But first... Argentina's new president, Alberto Fernandez, will be inaugurated today. He won a decisive victory in October's election, but he faces urgent economic problems. Argentina has inflation over 50%, rising poverty, and a sputtering relationship with the International Monetary Fund, which gave its biggest ever loan to the country last year. The new president has a high-profile deputy. The vice president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, no relation. She is a former president from the Peronist movement whose populist policies hobbled the economy for years. She also faces legal troubles, accused of numerous corruption charges that she denies. As the Fernandez duo take office, how will they govern? Some hope for pragmatism. Others fear more Peronist populism. Now that the two have named their cabinet, a picture is forming of how the new era might look. The cabinet looks like a mixture of, how shall I put it, back to the future, and then some new faces. David Smith reports for The Economist from Argentina. Most strikingly, the Treasury Minister. This is Martin Guzman, and this is very much a new face. A young economist coming home to Argentina from Columbia University in New York, and a fellow who clearly believes that Argentina has to grow to return to recovery first at home before this country can pay its, its many debts abroad. So aside from Mr. Guzman, who, who's going to be in the cabinet, who's, who's noteworthy? Oh, I think we have to look at a, a raft of appointments that clearly have the influence of Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. And in this cabinet, you can see in major ministries, in those posts, we are seeing very much members of the loyal old guard and power centres for her. So if a lot of these appointees are, uh, let's call them old friends, I mean, she is still under indictment, right? Do you you think that these appointees will essentially help her with uh, the various legal troubles? Oh, 
Uh, I think there's an obvious move on the part of the new government and, and the new president, Alberto Fernandez, has made it very clear that he believes um, that Cristina Fernandez uh, has been under political persecution along with others from her former government. Uh, and one extremely significant uh, appointment, Jason, is that of Attorney General. And the new Attorney General is one Carlos Zanini, a very close aide to former President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner and a man who only last year was in jail himself because he was under indictment for an alleged role and an alleged cover-up of a deal that she, as president, signed with Iran back in 2013. And Zanini, like Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, they all deny the charges against them. So I think in the, the makeup of this new government, we have a fairly clear path for the former president and the people around her from that government to, uh, to feel that they uh, will not be going to jail. So you say that these, these, all of these appointments point to a kind of, as you say, back to the future situation. I mean, what does that mean, do you think, for the economy? There's this, this looming IMF loan and some threat that it won't be paid for, for some time. How, how do you think this government will deal with the economic mess in Argentina? Well, I think on the economic front, we have to see that Alberto Fernandez, uh, the new president, is very much going to be taking charge of that one. Uh, And that's an important distinction here, Jason, because clearly around him, he is building a team that is his uh, and not necessarily loyal to Cristina Fernandez. And therefore, what we're seeing there is very much the idea that Argentina understands that the new world order is, is dramatically different and that they have to think differently. Now, what I'm understanding is is that the the new economic team is very much focused on growth at home in order to be able to pay its debts abroad. That's not a new argument. The IMF will be used to that one. However, I think the, the focus is not how we, for example, default. Remember, this country defaulted in 2001, and the early period of the Kirchner's was very much wedded to the idea of default. No, I think this government is saying that it wants to pay its debts, it wants to return to recovery, it is focused on how it can get that job done. The question is how much time will it need and how long will it be able to keep the domestic crisis, as it were, in control? One of the arguments I'm hearing from the new economic team is that, please, you have to help us because we have to contain this crisis in terms of inflation, in terms of rising unemployment, in terms of poverty, in terms of recession, because the alternative potentially is the crisis on the streets. Well, I think there is a recognition that on the economic crisis, this government, a Peronist government, has to show the world that it is thinking anew and thinking differently about how to get out of this. But if one of the sort of uh, central features of the economic plan here is to to get the IMF to ask the IMF to, to just sort of cool its heels for two years, how do you think the IMF will respond to that? I think the IMF is in a, is in a tough corner too. Politically, the IMF has come under a, a barrage of criticism, even from its allies and friends, for the way it's handled the Argentina crisis and the way that it was so much more flexible on the the loan. So I think in a sense, the IMF will surely listen to the new government's plea for time. The question is, in my mind, to what extent the government uses what we might call warnings, threats, 
fears to persuade its creditors to give them more time or to what extent it becomes a, uh, a serious conversation about how best to move forward because, you know, some of Argentina's debt, Jason, is due in January uh, and, you know, the, the government, in a sense, has a clock ticking that it has to confront. So what about what the, uh, what, the, what the people of Argentina make of this transition? Oh, I think it's interesting, Jason, that in, in these final days um, leading up to this handover now, you've seen people on both sides celebrating and remembering um, a massive demonstration here for the outgoing president, Mauricio Macri. People in tears even though his government has not exactly been able to achieve what it wanted to in terms of change. David, thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. 30 years ago, it seemed like the ideological contest of the 20th century was over. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The Berlin Wall fell. The Soviet Union collapsed. Socialism became a byword for economic failure and political oppression. But that's not the case today. After a decade of slow growth in living standards and amid widespread belief that inequality is soaring, the radical left is back. What we've termed millennial socialism is having something of a cultural moment. In Britain, the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, is vying to become prime minister in this week's election. The system is working just fine for them. It's rigged in their favor. But it's not working for you. And in America, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are hoping for a progressive revolution. We have to change the fundamental logic of a system and a politics that puts corporate profit ahead of all human and planetary costs. This new breed of leftists is bursting with ideas, and our senior economics writer Callum Williams has been reading up on them. Millennial socialism, which is a term that The Economist came up with earlier this year, has made a big comeback, particularly in the West, in the past few years. And there's been this wave of books that have been published in recent months by some of the leading lights of this millennial socialist revolution. 
And so, you know, what we've been trying to do is just understand what they want, these millennial socialists, and also how they are going to get there. So tell me a bit more about the books you've been reading. Okay, so there's a few. I suppose some of the ones that stand out, there's a sort of radical magazine in the US, which is called Jacobin. The editor of Jacobin has released this book, which is called The Socialist Manifesto. Another one that's come out, which is not by a millennial socialist exactly, but who talks about some of the ideas surrounding these people is one called Capitalism Alone. This is by someone called Branko Milanovic, who used to work at the World Bank. And so what did these books tell you about the ideology of millennial socialism? I guess the biggest thing was that what millennial socialists want is something that's often misunderstood by other people. So often what people think is that the new wave of socialists basically want their country to look a bit like Sweden or Finland or Norway, where capitalism can operate really quite freely, but it's taxed pretty heavily and those tax revenues are redistributed to other people. That actually misunderstands what these new socialists want. And there's a distinction which sounds like a really silly distinction, but actually is quite important between social democracy, which is Sweden, Norway, Finland and so on, and democratic socialism, on the other hand. And it may seem like a very minor distinction, but actually it points to a really a very different way of managing the economy. Well, how do you mean? What does democratic socialism actually entail? There are really three ways of thinking about it. There's three planks to this policy. The first is to do with fiscal policy, and that means much, much more government spending on everything from healthcare to education to a Green New Deal, all that sort of stuff. The second is about monetary policy. So what they basically say is that the cost of borrowing should be super low, which will mean that it's quite easy for the government to finance all of these plans. But it's the third plank, which is in some respects the most radical. And the idea here really is kind of structural reforms to how the economy works and how power is distributed around the economy. So that means lots of things. But for instance, taking the market out of as many things as possible. And it also means giving ordinary people, quote unquote, a much bigger say in how the economy is run. So for instance, it says that free markets are kind of a bad thing for your soul, in effect. And so it says that there's lots of things which currently are provided by the market, which under socialism should not be provided by the market. So for instance, in America, that includes healthcare. Healthcare should be free at the point of use. That's obviously a familiar idea to people in the UK. But it also says that you should have free lifelong learning. So at any point in your life, you should be able to go and get a free education in whatever it is you might want to be educated in. And it all, I mean, in some iterations of this thought, they say that the state should provide food, a basic level of food for free to everybody. So it, there's lots of different ideas, but that's kind of really what it boils down to. I mean, some of that is pretty radical. Have, have these ideas ever been put into practice anywhere? Nothing this radical has been tried before, but to think about how it might work in practice, you might, for instance, think about how a company might be run under a democratic socialist government. So at the moment, you have capitalists who decide what to do, and then the workers who are told what to do by the capitalists. The way it might work on democratic socialism is kind of everybody has a say in how the company works. So in other words, you kind of have a more cooperative form of government. And one of these books by this guy, Paul Adler, who's basically a management theorist in California, goes through exactly how a business could be run along socialist lines. So the idea is that everybody has a say in how their employer works. And so do you think these ideas will gain traction in the places where millennial socialism already has a foothold? They could be. I mean, political scientists have kind of agreed that at the moment, there's a lot of people who feel they don't really have much control over their lives. So globalization to a lot of people feels extremely disempowering. So the idea that 
you would have much more of a say over how your economy is run, I think is potentially quite a kind of compelling message. On the other hand, the kind of things that you'd need to do to get to that society are very serious in some respects. There's one book which is by these two people who are fairly close to the Labour Party in the UK, and they talk about how the UK might need to impose big capital controls on the economy to prevent people from removing money from the economy and various other really quite radical measures. And they say, you know, this is a price worth paying. Other people might not quite see it in the same way. Okay, so after reading all these books and and thinking broadly about the ideas of millennial socialism, what conclusion did you come to? For me, the most interesting thing was how Branko Milanovic, this guy who used to work for the World Bank, deals with these ideas. And he spends a bit of time thinking through like what democratic socialist ideas would mean for the economy. And for me, at least, he was surprisingly sort of down on these ideas, didn't think they were a particularly good idea at all. And he, for instance, talks about this idea of moving to a much shorter work week, which is a very popular idea on the millennial socialist left. And he says, this sounds like a great idea in practice, but a country that chose to do this would pretty much definitely become a lot poorer than other countries. And so you might be solving for one problem by everyone working less, but you then create other problems because people would start to get dissatisfied and that sort of thing. And what he ends up concluding, which is, in a sense, he is quite depressed by this conclusion, but he is drawn to it inexorably, which is that hyper-globalized, commoditized capitalism is basically all we have. And what we need to do is work out ways of fixing it from within rather than trying to throw it out totally. Callum, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. This holiday season, Americans are expected to spend 10% more than they did last year online. According to the National Retail Foundation, that's a total of more than $160 billion worth. But bricks and mortar stores are still hoping to lure in shoppers. And in New Jersey, one new mall is going all out to thrill visitors. The Shell Razor is the world's deepest roller coaster. When I was on it, the car climbed straight up 90 degrees. It paused for a few seconds before plunging and spiraling at a bizarrely head-spinning speed. Rosemary Ward goes to great heights reporting on America for The Economist. The passengers can see out the floor-to-ceiling windows across toward New York City. What's even more surreal is that the roller coaster is not at Disney World or Six Flags. It's at a new mall in New Jersey called the American Dream. I thought the era of new malls was coming to a close. I know, it's bizarre. But this mall had a bumpy road to its opening. It had multiple delays, a credit crunch, a recession, multiple owners, and a name change. It's 3 million square feet. It's second in size only to Minnesota's Mall of Americas. And this mall's a little different. Unlike most malls, which has a department store as an anchor like Macy's or JCPenney's, This small's anchor is an amusement park, a water park, a ski slope, eventually an aquarium and a Legoland, as well as a Ferris wheel. And the whole enterprise is costing some $5 billion to build. I mean, it sounds much more amusement parky than than Molly. It is. Retail will only take up about 45% of the space. And the owners, Triple Five, which is the company behind a number of mega malls in America and Canada, would rather it be called an entertainment complex. So why does this company want to keep making mega malls with, with attractions inside? I know, it's a funny time to be opening a mall. Department stores are cutting the numbers of stores they have. Retailers are filing for bankruptcy. Others are closing or trimming their store counts. 
But they think that this move towards online shopping will actually weed out an overbuild of mediocre retail centers. And they see a hole in which they're filling with destination shopping or experience building. And so do you think that strategy will work if the mediocre malls are replaced by destination malls, big day out malls? I mean, the analysts I spoke to are extremely skeptical. One analyst of theme parks said that there hasn't been a successful launch of an amusement park in a couple of decades. They're already struggling to compete for money and people's attention. And he said combining two struggling businesses is not necessarily a good idea. And the retail analyst I spoke with said that, you know, other malls are trying to do this. They're, they're converting, you know, an empty department store, or maybe knocking it down and making a hotel space or, or apartments. But it's not a savior. Not every market can even afford an Uber mall like American Dream. They don't have the people. New York is unusual in that we get something like 65 million people coming to the region a year. And the owners of Triple Five expect 40 million to come to the mall. In fact, they are marketing them all in 10 countries, including Britain and China. They're hoping that even a fraction of those tourists make the nine-mile trek to New Jersey. American Dream will do well. But as I said, most analysts are skeptical. Plus, there's this weird local law in New Jersey that bans shopping on Sundays. So you're only going to have retail availability six days a week. And on Sundays, they went on the roller coasters. On Sundays, they will be screaming on the shell razor. Rosemary, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a fun day at work. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU... Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary.